Welcome to the November 2017 issue of the Senses of Cinema podcast. I'm one of the editors of the journal, Mark Freeman, and I'm joined by my co-host, writer, academic and film programmer, Eloise Ross. Hi, Mark. And in our rotating third chair this month is Joanna DiMattia. Joe, tell us what you do in the world of screen culture. Hi, Mark and Eloise. Um, I'm a writer, film critic, uh, independent scholar, and I'm a pretty regular contributor now to Senses of Cinema. Which is why we've got you on, because you're amazing. Thank you. I know. See, I'm, I'm free with the compliments. And speaking of compliments, thanks to everybody who supported our very first show last month. We actually got to number one on iTunes in the film and TV category, which was amazing. And a really special thanks to those uh, people who signed up to become patrons of Senses of Cinema. Um, just as a reminder, if you want to subscribe to the podcast, you can just do it through iTunes or you can head to censusofcinema.com, click on the podcast link and then on the menu icon on the left and add the appropriate feed to your device. So it was a fantastic first show and now we're up to number two. Shall we get started? Let's get started. All right. So on today's show, we're going to be looking at Jao Pedro Rodriguez's festival favourite, The Ornithologist, where a man looks at birds and then has sex with a deaf gay Jesus. Then we take a look at the events that have made a lot of very bad men very, very nervous, the exposure of entrenched sexual harassment within the film industry. And then finally, the BFI in London are holding a retrospective on the career of Gloria Graham. And in light of this, we're going to have a look at her rich and varied career as a noir icon, exploitation mama, and a tuneless musical star. (laughs) And in our bonus segment this month, November's third chair, Joe DiMattia, is taking us through the career of Terence Davies on the back of her excellent great director's piece on his career uh, that she's published in our current issue of Senses of Cinema. So that's what we've got to look forward to. But how about we just dive straight into The Ornithologist? The Ornithologist is Jao Pedro Rodriguez's latest film. It's had a, a slow uh, kind of release over the past year and has played at a whole series of festivals, uh, most recently, uh, in fact, here in Melbourne uh, in, in July. Uh, it is a very curious, strange film about a man who uh, watches birds, travels down a river, gets attacked by a couple of Chinese pilgrims, uh, discovers Jesus... Uh, and then slowly transforms into something completely different. Now, it is a strange and unusual film. Eloise, what did you make of it? Well, this film is an allegory for something, but I think basically it doesn't really matter um, what it what it is an allegory for. I loved this film because of its, I guess, absorbing, immersive qualities. Uh, it's got a really wonderful sound design, really brilliant use of uh, visuals, all of these wide shots of, um, of the jungle and then very um, sort of from, from above, from a bird's eye view. And it is literally from a bird's eye view at some cases. There's yeah. these, um, you know, shot reverse shots that suggest that an eagle is watching or, you know, the dove is watching. Um, so it's really beautiful because it's just such a, a sensual movie, I think. Um, You get get really into – so this main character, Fernando, who does end up sort of becoming someone else, um, you get really, really involved in his plight. I mean, it's a survival movie, really. If you strip it back, he gets lost in the jungle, he gets stranded, and then he tries to – he sort of tries to to escape um, through a number of of, um, people that he meets or different activities – so if you strip it back, then that's what it—that's what it is, really, and that's what I took from it. Yeah, Joe, how did you find it? 
I've seen it twice. I saw it at MIF uh, earlier in the year and then I rewatched it um, recently. And I feel very much the same as Eloise, that um, you don't necessarily need to walk away from this film understanding the allegory, which is it's supposed to be a kind of queering of the story of St. Anthony of Padua. So he was um, a saint who he's basically become the patron saint of lost things and lost people and lost causes. Um, so, you know, the character Fernando is himself lost. He comes across other people who are lost. I know I've read some reviews where they've tried to draw these kind of direct links between St. Anthony's story and Fernando's. But, you know, I didn't know that when the first time I saw it and even knowing it the second time when I watched the film, it didn't really add to my, you know, appreciation and enjoyment. I mean, I agree, it's a very sensual film, very tactile. There's, you know, tremendous, beautiful um, cinematography that, that, you know, the immersion in nature, animals of all kinds, you know, particularly that opening sequence when he's on the river is really quite um, stunning. And... You know, I feel like the film does lose its way a little bit, um, probably in keeping with the whole idea of everybody being lost. But, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's, there's a lot of pleasures in the film and they're not necessarily of the narrative coherence nature. And, and that's one of the things that I find most curious about the film because I really enjoyed it too. And, you know, I, I'm the total atheist. I've got no understanding of, you know, religious kind of iconography or, you know, beyond the most rudimentary. And, you know, I understand, okay, this is about the, the kind of um, the parable, I guess, about St. Anthony of Padua, who obviously means a lot to, uh, to Rodriguez himself. And I still enjoyed it, even though I didn't get it. And I'm trying to figure out why that is. I mean, don't we need to have a level of narrative coherence or understanding of what the film is getting at to actually feel a level of enjoyment. Like, why is it that we've all responded positively to a film we didn't understand? <laughs> I mean, what is that film doing that's making us go on board with a narrative that we and a character who doesn't make sense to us because we don't have that background knowledge? I mean, I wouldn't say that we don't understand it, I th- or that I don't. I mean, I was the same. I had no idea what the premise of this film was going in apart from, I mean, I think you had both said to me it was about St. Anthony and, um, to read up on it, but I, I had no idea. So going in, I mean, it, it's not really until maybe halfway or two thirds way through the film that it becomes, um, you know, this really kind of, um, diff- it like changes direction. I mean, you can follow Fernando through the film until a certain point. So maybe it gets us on board in that way and we do come to understand, understand him. Do you uh, think? Yeah. And I think that Partly what picking up on what Joe said earlier, I mean, because it's essentially just a, a kind of almost like a journey, you know, a kind of personal journey of discovery for him, like even though the, the details are lost on me because I don't mm. get the allusions to St. Anthony of Padua or at least not many of them, um, I can at least get some sense of what it is to find yourself in a difficult situation and then start to discover and reinvent yourself, to rethink yourself. And so that there's a lot of that investigation of him, you know, not having access to the pills that it, for whatever mystery ailment that he has, that he's not going to be taking them. So that starts to transform him. He has this continuing frustrating relationship with his mobile phone that, you know, it's slowly bit by bit. He's leaving behind the, the you know, the life that he led earlier. And then after those experiences with um, Faye and Lynn, who, 
you know, drug him, tie him up in his tidy whities in a kind of imitation of St. Sebastian, um, and then ultimately, you know, coming across the gay, deaf Jesus shepherd, um, that there are a series of these transformative experiences that he has that suddenly recenter him in a really interesting way. So I mightn't get the illusions, but I can get the, the trajectory of that transformation. Yeah, exactly. Him just, you know, meeting new people, coming across new people, and each time shifting his behaviour. And we understand a little bit more about him um, because of the way he interacts with these people that he meets, Yeah, which is really interesting. Yeah, and, and it is playing a lot with perspectives. As, mm. as you were saying, that the whole idea of, of swapping between a kind of objective position that where the camera is going to look at Fernando himself and then cutting constantly back to nature and the way that they perceive him. And quite early on, you do see that, that he is, um, he is a, a different person in the eyes of, of the animals, of the birds. So that even though the, a transformation into a new identity comes later on in the film, quite early on, from a bird's eye view, you do see that, that it is not um, the same actor, that in fact it's been replaced by the director himself. Mm. Uh, and, you know, we see this constant switching between the way that he's perceiving himself and how he sees himself within an environment, and in fact how the environment sees him. And so that, again, I guess I come back to that idea that I didn't necessarily understand exactly what was going on. I can't unearth the, the clever parables, but I can totally get what it is to see position a person within an environment and have the environment look back at them in a kind of interrogation of who they are. There's an interesting um, relationship, I think, between Fernando's birdwatching and uh, the scopophilia of cinema. So this idea that he's watching the birds, the birds are watching him, we're watching him. I haven't quite nutted it out, but, you know, there's definitely some interesting things going on there about looking and where we're all positioned in relation to that. The the other thing I was really surprised by was how funny it was. Yes, particularly that opening with the two Chinese pilgrims. I, I did laugh a lot <laughs> during hilarious. that. Very, very funny. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, even though it, it sounds like it's this dead serious kind of you know, man's journey into a transformed identity, it's actually really witty and really mm. hilarious. Um, when I saw it, I've seen the film twice now as well. And at the moment where... Um, Jesus reveals his name by writing it in the sand every single time that has produced like the, the most outrageous laughs in the, in the cinema because people are just, of course it's Jesus, <laughs> you know, and then where that whole sequence goes becomes even more kind of fascinating and complex and interesting. So I, I really appreciated the humor of that film because it feels like it, it almost intellectually, it feels really weighty and deep and yet it's played with this kind of quite light um, touch, including, mm. you know, that final scene, which I love that final scene, the credit scenes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the music that, that plays yeah. over it. Yeah. But I really love, I mean, we mentioned that it's a comedy and it's also quite a heavy intellectual uh, exploration, which it is. But I, what I um, really appreciated about this film was how um, clever Rodriguez is in kind of switching tones. Like the beginning is just this really beautiful, like meditative experience where Fernando is on the river looking at birds, very slowly um, kind of appreciating the environment and the water. Um, These very kind of, not very long takes, but I suppose some long takes where you really understand him being there. And then about five or 10 minutes in, the editing gets faster. It's it's as he's approaching Mm. the rapids, the editing gets faster and, and as though it was mimicking a, a thriller. 
Yeah. Um, and I got very tense and on, kind of on the edge of my seat. And it switches at that point. And then it becomes a bit horrifying, um, but then back to comedy and then more meditative. And as Fernando kind of decides to give up and no longer attempt to escape from the jungle, it, it, it changes yeah. again. And I thought that was really, really well done. I mean, he, he does some great stuff with those kind of weird pagans who are running around oh, yeah. performing some bizarre ritual with his <clears throat> broken kayak um, and wearing masks and all that sort of business. That, that there are sequences of that that are really deeply tense. I agree. There's a sequence where he's in his tent and they're kind of cavorting around outside. Mm. And it's like, oh, has this suddenly become some sort of horror movie? Are we going mm. to get some brutal attack on poor old Fernando? He's suffered enough, hasn't he? But now the, the kind of crazy people with the masks are going to be, you know, laying into him, that it really does shift really consistently from those tones, as you say, so that you emerge at the end, maybe not necessarily comprehending everything, but feeling like you've had a full emotional Mm. sort of experience of the film, which I think is really interesting. Well, you get a real sense there of him being one very small body in the world and, you know, the sort of pressure that's on him and that sense that he is under threat. I think that's what carries you through, like you said, emotionally. Yeah, emotionally and also I think with a lot of tactility. I mean, when he meets all of these people throughout his journey, he he um, sort of has these moments of bodily contact with each of them in a different way and that's really beautiful. Yeah. I mean, Rodriguez himself has described it as a kind of Pasolini Western mm. and you can kind of make but sense I of... I did think of Pasolini, yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, I think Rodriguez is kind of playing in the same ballpark. He's taking a lot of kind of very sacred images mm. and then inverting them. I mean, you know, the little bit of reading I did on St. Anthony of Padua, you know, my understanding is that he's consistently shown holding the baby Jesus and cradling the baby Jesus. And we essentially get that scene, mm-hmm. except they've both just had sex and they're both naked. So he's kind of playing with that kind of clever subversion of traditional images and traditional approaches to religion in the way that Pasolini liked to play around in that field as well. Um, so it's a, a complex, strange beautiful, funny, kind of moderately scary <laughs> film. So if you, you know, are prepared for all of those emotions bundled up into a package that maybe you walk out of thinking, I don't quite understand it, but I still loved it, I think Rodriguez's film is really one to, to chase down. It certainly played out, as I've said, across a, a range of um, outlets over the past year. So it is no doubt somewhere to be found. I hope so. And I think because, you know, we've all seemed to agree that this is more about the senses and the immersion rather yeah. than the narrative, that yeah. I think it's really worth seeing in the cinema. Yeah, if you can agreed. There. Absolutely. 100%. Okay, so if you want to add to this discussion on Rodriguez's film, we'd love to hear from you. So to do that, you can just head to facebook.com slash cinema and leave a comment there on our episode thread. On October 5th, of this year, the New York Times published an article outlining decades of sexual harassment behaviour by Harvey Weinstein, and the effects of the story have been widespread ever since. More women have come forward with allegations against Weinstein and other controlling men in Hollywood, and men and women have accused some others in powerful positions of abuse, which have produced widespread cracks in the industry's makeup. What is interesting to consider is why all of these things are having traction and seeing results now when there have been plenty of such behaviours in the recent and distant past that have had no consequences for abusers. Historically, some people in powerful positions in the film industry have committed appalling acts including systemic abuse, 
but have not been condemned by the film going public on the same scale. As Amy Nicholson said in The Village Voice, these revelations right now and their effects don't quite feel like a victory because it's too awful and it's been going on for too long with too many decades of ignoring this behaviour to feel like good news. In my notes, I called this section Smash the Patriarchy. <laughs> Joe, do you think we're getting to a point where this might be um, starting to happen? I think we're definitely starting to crack it, but um, I think it's a really complicated issue. Um, it's sort of, it's made me feel very much that this film industry that I'm so kind of in love with has been the repository of all of our dreams, but also probably more of our nightmares. And, you know, we're seeing all these stories every day. Even this morning, there's been another one um, that's come to light um, where we're talking about individual acts, but we're also talking about structural problems that are endemic and years in the making, as you've you said. You know, this is a historical problem in this industry. Um, I think we all agree that sexual harassment and abuse occurs in every workplace, but there's something a little bit um, more complicated, perhaps, and I think it's about the film industry, and I think where it becomes more complicated to talk about because it's an industry that is basically was founded, I guess, on um, the commodification of people's bodies. So I'm thinking of the old studio system here. And so, you know, I did a bit of reading in preparation for this segment, looking back at um, all of the scandals in inverted commas from, you know, the earliest years of Hollywood and the 40s and the 50s and so on. And, you know, actors and actresses then, they were under contract to a studio. They could be loaned out. They could be sold. They could be returned. They could have their request to go work for another studio refused. I mean, they basically were owned. Um, and, you know, that was the case for both men and women. But as we know, women often find it much more difficult, even today, to negotiate the terms of your contract mm -hmm. um, to get yourself out of it or to try to get more money, et cetera. So I think even if you go right back, as you say, yeah. like if we go right back to when that industry starts, it is men that are running those studios. Yeah. And, and if you're dealing in an industrial system where you're kind of, as you say, sort of buying and trading people, well... You know, if your studio is headed by one man who probably has a range of other men around him, then it's not in some ways surprising. It's not good, but it's not surprising that perhaps the, the buying and selling of men and women as products and commodities within a, a film industry, that maybe there's a, a bit of a, a different trade that is going on with women. And, and my take on this whole awful, terrible situation is that this is something that's kind of been built into the structure of mm. the industry itself. Because, you know, I mean, people can be rubbish, you know, anywhere, but this seems to be an industry where that kind of uh, trade is conducted informally, that mm -hmm. is not necessarily, you know, something that is, um, certainly there's an audition process, but, you know, to get into that industry, you have to find alternate ways sometimes to, to trade your way in men in positions of power who have the capacity to make or break a, a career. Therefore, some of the most rubbish of them are going to then use other strategies to get other gratification by using that power over, over people. And unfortunately, because it's men that are running that industry, that it's women that are end up on the, on the wrong end of that deal. And what I find so horrifying about this, and it's something that I knew about, but obviously I'm reading more about now, um, and it's something that, that it has been revealed um, in many 
articles written by, um, you know, the, the journalists right now who are exposing the issue, particularly Ronan Farrow, who's been writing really wonderful stuff for The New Yorker, has been talking about the lengths that Weinstein would go to to cover up um, and to silence and quash um, the voices of his victims. <clears throat> and this is something that's been, you know, going on for um, decades for probably as long, if not longer, than the industry has been um, in existence for, um, where where a, a man would do something horrible and then... Um, I mean, this happened all the time and it was written into um, contracts of stars, you know, in the 20s and, or 30s, particularly in 40s, you know, these these morality clauses where, where stars who were under contract had to behave in a certain way. And if they didn't, the studios then had... Um, you know, absolute right, or so they claimed, to do whatever they could to to cover up what, you know, certain behaviour. And so studios could lie. If you did something to threaten your contract, then a studio might, um, you know, kind of try and, and brandish your name, make up horrible stories about, you know, there was this um, article written by, um, written about um, Patricia Douglas, um, who... This was several years ago, I think a decade ago, uh, um, who in the 30s um, or maybe early 40s, she went. She was an MGM girl and she went to a, a party and was raped. And then she tried to report it. And what the studios did is they sort of made up that she was a loose um, woman, that she'd been drunk at the time, that she was just happy-go-lucky, that she was inviting it, you know, sort of ruined her character so that her story... Um, would not be believed and so that she was the villain rather than the victim. That kind of thing was going on all the time yeah. and is that, still that, going on There was now. a documentary on her, wasn't there? Yeah. Girl, girl 33? Uh, yeah, yeah, girl. It was a number of some yeah. sort, yeah. 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 Um, yeah, anyway, so, you know, the, this era which brandished, um, or, you know, that sort of um, threatened people's lives and careers and reputations rather than actually dealing with this problem that was inbuilt into the system, as yeah. you say. I mean, the prevalence of these non-disclosure agreements, I mean, I lost count of how many apparently mm. Weinstein had, you know, set into um, motion. It's just, you know, it's a conspiracy basically to silence women. And, you know, people ask, well, why do they enter into it? Well, you know, there's this, you have to remember that the, this is people's economic livelihood and, you know, people are worried about, it's you know, connecting to what you're saying, the loss of their reputation, the loss of their career, you know, facing um, total financial ruin, perhaps in some cases, um, you know, powerful men have that power to to basically block your ability to make a livelihood. And there was a great piece written by um, the actress and, and screenwriter, and I think she's also a director, uh, Britt Marling for The Atlantic, where she talked about that, you know, about women's economic inequality in the industry actually muddles the idea of consent because a woman, when a woman's livelihood is involved, you know, there is a very, uh, perhaps a slightly more complicated relationship between financial and bodily autonomy. And if you don't have power, how do you give consent to these yeah. things? I mean, it's very complicated for us to unpack here, but, you know, there's there's just a lot. <laughs> and, and it feels like the, the, the entire structure of that industry is organised for that protection. And, you know, I suppose what, what I keep thinking about while I'm reading all of these kind of terrible horror stories is, you know, I, I don't work in the film industry. I, I work in, in other industry, mostly in, in sort of education, you know, throughout my life. There's no way you can 
do the things that these people have done because we have systems in place. You know, certainly when I got you know a job at a university, it didn't involve me you know a nudge and a wink with the vice chancellor. Mm. Um, you know, it it was a, a strict, formal, objective process of an interview, and then you know a panel made decisions about you know whether you were accepted for that job or not. In the film industry, it's like, hey, let's go out for drinks, come back to my motel room, and we can have a chat about stuff. And if you're doing that in a way that is in informal, and that informal process is entrenched in the film industry, then that's that informal process allows like terrible, awful men um, to exploit those who are looking for employment. So, you know, if you, it, it feels to me like this is, I mean, certainly, obviously, the exposure of all of this terrible abuse is is you know, horrifying, but it's also exposing an industry that that hasn't grappled with the way that business is done. You know, it's like you, you've suddenly realised that you're way, way behind the way that other industries have to run out of kind of respect for, for their employees. Absolutely. And this is not, I mean, we have to be quite, um, I guess, we just have to say that this is not exclusive to the Hollywood film industry, no. this kind of behaviour. No. I mean, it is. there are protections, as you say, in other industries, but there have been revelations in, in all sorts of, of industries um, before and since that this has been um, something really of an issue. But you're right that there are, there's like no kind of understanding of how this might be be shaped and how the shifts in understandings of gender equality um, and behaviour and human rights um, have been kind of addressed in other industries. Yeah. That just hasn't happened in Hollywood. Yeah. And, and I'm kind of, you know, part of me just keeps looking at the, the fact that particularly the, the American film industry does tend to have, and I don't want to be too mean here, but, you know, they have this perception of themselves as being kind of amazingly progressive and, you know, we will sort of celebrate the film and you know, this one film and we solved racism, you know. They have this kind of incredible self-congratulatory, you know, image that they project. All of these stories are exposing the fact that they are totally behind, that they're not progressive, that other industries, I mean, it's not like a sexual harassment policy means that it never happens, but at least there are clear pathways and avenues to address you know, those events when they do occur. Mm. Um, so, and this industry hasn't grappled with the most fundamental elements of a, of a contemporary industry. And this kind of idea of them being re really progressive is actually, this is kind of pointing out the, the lie uh, that, that in fact that they are regressive, that they haven't stayed up to speed with basic social politics and industrial politics and, and have just traded on, you know, what we would call in Australia at least kind of jobs for mates. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, men protect each other, I think, um, and uh, men will cover up for for each other and, and put in place sort of more um, kind of bridges, I suppose, for other men rather than other women. And it is a, it's a gender issue, but it's also a power issue. Yeah. I think it's um, this whole conversation has really um, brought home, not to get too communist, but, you know, the very close <laughs> relationship that still remains between capitalism and patriarchy. <laughs> and just to go back to something you said, Mark, about, you know, Hollywood's perceived progressiveness of itself, uh, view of its progressiveness. I mean, the whole... We've been having a conversation now for a couple of years about, you know, the need for more female directors, the need for more female-led stories. You know, it's kind of a problem that's, you know, the need for more female film critics. It's mm. a problem at all levels yep. of the industry. 
Yeah, there's been all of these um, recent um, kind of exposés as well um, about certain film, um, you know, websites, film critic yeah. websites. Um, Cine Family in Los Angeles has just closed down because of the the behaviours of some of its staff members, um, which is obviously a real shame because of, um, you know, what this behaviour is doing to this industry that we love so much mm. um, and how it can, how we can deal with it. And, you know, obviously the answer is listen to victims, um, listen to women. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, it's not simply a gender divide. I do need to say that. Yeah. But it is overall, yes. you look at this pattern of behaviour and it's very much kind of indicates that patriarchy is the problem. With this bloodletting, you know, it's kind of like the other thing that, that is so fascinating about this is it's almost like, you know, particularly the American film industry goes through these periods of disclosure and kind of revelation. You know, I, I keep sort of coming back to the fact that, you know, in the 20s and 30s, there was this kind of this is the the den of sin, mm. you know, by the 50s, you're, you're moving into the exposure of sort of you know, potential communist links, you know, whether real or, or false. You know, I, I find it fascinating that they do seem to, that industry seems to go through a process of kind of revelation and disclosure that there is, you know, and sometimes for good, hopefully this one is for good, and sometimes in the past it's been for ill, but this idea of just kind of almost exposing the, the awfulness or the, the suspicion within that industry as a kind of bloodletting and then moving forward. So I'm wondering whether can Hollywood sort of steer the ship in a better direction after the, you know, all of this kind of, rev after these revelations, are we going to see a, a Hollywood that will perhaps start to move as just an industrial model that reckon, recognises gender equality as not just kind of an awesome social movement, mm. but necessary for the, the health of its own industry? Mm. That's a really interesting question, and I do wonder whether it will. I want to um, kind of mention maybe just in closing that um, Gail Godot um, sort of said publicly, and I think she then later said that the entire crew of the Wonder Woman sequel had called for Brett Ratner's removal from the crew. Yeah. Um, I think he was on as producer um, and that he's been removed from the project now. And so hopefully that is an indication. And there have been several other instances recently of um, men whose behaviour has been abusive, who've been removed from other projects. And hopefully mm. that's this, hopefully this won't be just like jumping on a bandwagon yeah. kind of thing, like a getting publicity. I mean, hopefully it's a sign that there are certain changes finally taking place. I mean, we've heard, you know, there have been, whether or not they're rumours or, like, actually believed things, you know, for decades and decades, and, and men just haven't had their comeuppance. Um, and hopefully now something's happening. Um, anyway, let's wrap it up, shall we, and move on to maybe something a little bit happier. Yes. <laughs> let, let, let's put Weinstein away where he, like, in the dark where he belongs. <laughs> yes. Let's go on to something a little cheerier. Great. Good. At Senses of Cinema, we do our best to bring you the most interesting, provocative writing on cinema from across the globe, highlighting films from the past and present to bring you exciting new talent to your attention and to explore fresh perspectives on films from the past. But it's true that bringing this journal to you each quarter is an expensive proposition, so we have now established a Patreon account to help with meeting the costs of keeping Senses of Cinema running. We have a whole range of goodies for patrons that subscribe to our account, 
We're offering newsletters, including fresh takes on cinema from our editors and curated dossiers from our back catalogue. If you subscribe at the higher level, you get all the extras and an ad-free version of this very podcast so you don't have to be interrupted by me every month. Plus, you'll get an additional bonus segment of the podcast each month out of our gratitude to your commitment to Senses of Cinema. It means that you'll contribute to our ultimate goal at Senses, and that's to be in a position to pay our fantastic writers for all the hard work they all do to keep the journal as terrific as it is. To become a patron of Senses of Cinema, visit sensesofcinema.com, click on our Patreon link, and enjoy the benefits of supporting those who bring the journal to you throughout the film year. Gloria Graham first found a place on screen as the flirtatious Violet Bick in Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life in 1946. She went on to have an incredible career with roles in films like Crossfire, The Big Heat and In a Lonely Place, and she won an Oscar for her role in The Bad and the Beautiful in 1952. She died at the age of 57 in events chronicled in a new film from Paul McGuigan called Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool. Coinciding with the release of that film this month in London is a BFI South Bank retrospective on her career that runs until December, and this seems like a good time to look back on Graham's film history. Eloise Graham, Gloria Graham left a significant mark, particularly in the films of the 50s. What qualities did she have that lifted her above the rest of those alluring blondes of the 50s? What qualities does she have? Yeah. I don't I don't know. I mean, basically, I love her, and she's very <laughs> sultry and kind of warm, and I find that even though she plays sort of, I think, even though sometimes she plays, um, you know, I suppose someone who would be a, a daft blonde or, a, um, you know, an airhead type of character, she's always... Um, very appealing and she's always has this warmth to her somehow. Um, and that's what I really love, I think. And I think, I mean, it possibly comes, I'm sure we'll talk more about this later, but it possibly comes from me just watching In a Lonely Place so often <laughs> where she's like in that, that role, which yeah. I think is, even though she won an Oscar for The Bad and the yeah. Beautiful, I think that In a Lonely Place is her key role Agreed. in her career and that that just defines her appeal so well. Yeah. Well, should we? Why don't we go straight into In a Lonely Place to, to really play around with what she does in that film that's so incredible? Now, Joe, I know that you're a bit of a fan of In a Lonely Place. I am. I think we all love it. Yeah. yeah. So, what is she doing in that film? Because, I mean, when I sort of sat down and went through her filmography, I realised that so much of my understanding of her is actually only based on a few films. Yeah. That it was really kind of In a Lonely Place, Crossfire, Oklahoma, um, you know, maybe a couple of others. Um, her career was so varied, but it's in a lonely place that sticks in my mind. What is she doing in that film that makes her so incredible? I think the character she plays, Laurel Gray, is a really multifaceted woman. So we see, I think we see more of her than um, Dix Steele, who's played by Humphrey Bogart, sees or that he wants to see. And, you know, there's these private moments that she has with her friend and masseuse, whose name I can't remember, um, where you learn a bit more about her as a character. And I think that that's, it sort of does go back to me, for me, to what's interesting about her as an actress, is that she has an intelligence. Um, like you said, even if she's playing a ditz, there's something smart going on there because she looks like an actress who's always thinking. Yeah. You know, there's something going on behind the eyes. There's yeah. something happening um, when she's talking to a character or when she's taking in another person or a room. Um, there's the vulnerability 
And I mean that in the terms of the opposite of weakness. It's an openness. Yeah. And, you know, that's, I think, a really important element for an actor to have. Um, She's fundamentally kind of sensible. And I think yes. that that's, that's what I like about watching her, especially in A Lonely Place, where she's placed in, in a series of, of very, very difficult situations. She doesn't, as an actor and, frankly, as a character, she mm. doesn't do what I suppose would be almost a, a convention of Hollywood. She's a sensible woman who says, there's something wrong here. It makes me sad, but I've got to do the right thing. Mm. And and that's what constantly comes through in so many of her other films. Just, yeah, if she's playing you know, somebody who might be a little bit silly... Uh, which only happens a couple of times, really. Mostly, she's just this very, very intelligent woman who recognises the way the world works. She's not necessarily angry or kind of spiteful or terrible. She just recognises this is how things work, and here's the way that I have to navigate my way through the world that she she's sort of involved in. And I really appreciate the fact that she's she's not your kind of dumb, silly blonde who makes ridiculous decisions, which is a kind of really common trope in the in the 50s when she does most of her work. She always assesses a situation and makes an appropriate decision. Definitely. something. I mean, something like Crossfire, which you mentioned, yeah. she plays Ginny, who's this, um, you know, sort of nightclub dancer, I suppose, or hostess. Um, and she meets a very sad um, returned soldier played by George Cooper. And I think they have a really beautiful chemistry because they're both so rejected and vulnerable, I think they're perfectly cast as a match um, in in timidity, I think, yeah. and you see both of them play off each other. But she she makes sense of situations and she's just all about surviving, I think. She doesn't do stupid things. She says very intelligent things. She says um, to to his wife, um, when he come, when she comes and says, "Where's, where's my husband?" She says, "Where were you when he needed you? I bet you were somewhere having a beautiful, having beautiful thoughts. I was stuck in a stinking gin mill, yeah. you know." So she's she doesn't mess around. And I mean, I know that that's her character, but you can see it very much coming from her um, that she does always seem to play these people who are just um, have very good survival instincts. Yeah. There's a great exchange um, just to go back to in a lonely place where. Um, uh, Dix does this sort of assessment of Graham's character, which feels very much to me about... It's almost like an assessment of her as a person. Mm -hmm. um, he says to her, you know, when you first walked into the police station, I said to myself, there she is, the one that's different. She's not coy or cute or corny. She's a good guy. I'm glad she's on my side. She speaks her mind and she knows what she wants. And then she adds, you know, she agrees. And she says, thank you, sir, but let me add, I also know what I don't want and I don't want to be rushed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because she's always, you know, this is the great thing about her, even though she plays, you know, often she is the, the seductress or the person who's, you know, the, the beautiful woman kind of from the wrong side of the tracks. She's never anybody's fool. Mm. And there is something ab about the way that Graham can deliver a line that lets you know, even if she's kind of doing, you know, playing somebody who is, you know, maybe not necessarily that admirable, that she knows where she is, she knows what's going on, and she's got the measure of everybody in the room. And I kept coming back as I was going through so many of her films that almost the, the rarity of that, that, that she's a woman who still has the, the beauty and the allure and all of the things that we think of when we think of the, the great sort of film stars of the 50s, I suppose. But she's not going to be tricked. You know, she's, she's not somebody who's going to be fooled by some dude. She knows the way that the world works and she makes sure that she positions herself as best she can. Mm -hmm. I think she's kind of really admirable in that way. Um, 
do we dare talk about Oklahoma? <laughs> because, because that look, when you look at her career, there are such strong uh, roles really early on in her career, which is when you get your kind of your crossfires and in a lonely place. I think in a lonely place is very early in her career. That's like the fourth or fifth film she's yeah, done, I yeah. think. Mm-hmm. Um, she gets to Oklahoma, and there has been some debate about how she fits within that film. Um, I confess that I kind of love her <laughs> in that film. Look, I mean, bless her. She can't carry a tune in a bucket. She is <laughs> hopeless. Uh, but that is that is the thing that is so appealing about her. I think, you know, it's one of the rare times she gets to be really funny and really goofy and comedic. Because normally she's slightly sort of aloof, intelligent beauty. And in this mm. one, she isn't dressed up to be beautiful. She's this kind of goofy source of comedy in what is ultimately a pretty dark musical. Yeah, interesting. Mark, you know what I think of this. I, I, I think you need I, to remind me of what you think of this. <laughs> I don't know. I think that she shouldn't have been cast in Oklahoma. Um, that's interesting, the things that you're saying, and you're making me want to go back and kind of reconsider. But basically, I really enjoy Oklahoma, and it is a very dark film. And she is this goofball. She just looks like she doesn't belong. Um, and like she's kind of... Um, intentionally performing in this way that is somehow ruining the tone of the film. That's just the way I kind of yeah, read no. her performance. No. See, I mean, the, the way that I see it is that she is surrounded by all of these kind of seasoned Broadway sort of veterans who are have that kind of smooth ease with, and now I shall burst into mm. song. Um, and she has this perfect awkwardness. And, you know, she is the, I mean, apart from Rod Steiger, who... who you know, doesn't get to be particularly comedic. Um, you know, she is this kind of weird anomaly in a film where everybody is really slick. Mm-hmm. And I like the fact that she's the, the one who kind of gets everything wrong. And that's why I ultimately sort of gravitate towards her. I will agree, I, I'm not crazy about the way that she delivers, you know, I, I'm, I'm a girl who can't say no. But she does <laughs> the, the, a, a song later on where she does All for Nothing, which I think is hilarious where she gets to play some really good comedic lines in that song, and I'm kind of totally on board with her. But but I like the fact that she's this weird anomaly mm. in a film that is all about kind of slickness and perfection. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, it is interesting that she is a performer in this film and also that she sings in her own voice. Yeah. Um, I mean, th- you know, sings in a kind of, <laughs> in, in her own special way. Totally. Well, there must have been a reason for it because, I mean, she appeared as a singer in several other films and her voice was dubbed. You know, she was in one of the yeah. Thin Man films. Yeah. She sings um, in Naked Alibi as well. Yeah, yeah she sings in Naked Alibi, um, but she's dubbed. Yeah. Um, I mean, she looks beautiful and appealing, but it's, it's not her voice. Yeah. And so there's something definitely about that whole, um, you know, reality of her voice yeah. in Oklahoma. But it's part of the comedy of her character, I That's suppose. Right. Yeah. I mean, she, she's just such an odd figure in that film. I kind of get why people are like, she doesn't fit. And I don't think, I don't think she's intended to fit. I think that the fact that she's so awkward in that, in that film is its beauty. Uh, maybe it's just because I've find her really hilarious and I don't find enough Gloria Graham like doing wacky comedy. Mm. What's that line she has in that song? You know, uh, that story about how I lost my bloomers? Rumors. You know, like, it's <laughs> just genius. So I kind of, I kind of love her for her kind of weirdness within, within that film. But I mean, that is certainly the, the narrative that we get that, you know, 
she's weirdly miscast in Oklahoma. And after that, I mean, her career starts to go very, very strange after what that. What year was Oklahoma? That's about 56, I reckon. Right. I can't remember just off the top of my head. It's around about 56, 57. Um, I yeah, don't know. So not, not too long before she kind of, um, her career, her reputation was damaged in Hollywood right. and she went overseas. She went to London yeah. um, and moved there to kind of escape um, her, her damning um, reputation. Yes. And, and that reputation, considering we have just talked about mm. Weinstein and by implication Kevin Spacey, I mean, you know, that scandal that broke is kind of a fascinating parallel to the events that are going on now where, you know, she was married to Nicholas Ray. The the word is, and, you know, maybe this is, you know, untrue, but at least this is what I have come to understand, that Nicholas Ray comes home one day from work early and finds his wife, Gloria Graham, in bed with his 14-year-old son, mm. um, at which point their marriage falls apart, unsurprisingly, uh, but then later on she does indeed marry that son. When he's um, of age. Yeah, when yeah. he's of age, yeah. That's true. What I what I really like is, because, you know, this is perhaps all hearsay, um, what I like in, in the new film about her starring Annette Benning, film stars don't die in Liverpool, there is just one bit where her kind of, um, you know, aggressive sister accuses her at the dinner table of doing that with, with Nicholas Ray's son. And later on, the character played by Jamie Bell asks her, is it true? And she says, no. And he says, okay, I believe you. And then that's it. And I love that this was the chance that I feel like the film was not engaging in this like salacious no. rumor mm-hmm. and giving no, her a chance to redeem herself yeah. um, or giving the, the, the memory of Gloria Graham a chance to be redeemed. I, I really appreciate that because I don't like dwelling on it, you know, in this kind of, you know, Kenneth Angry type of way. Yeah. No, I agree. Like yeah. it, we're not in Hollywood Babylon. Yeah. Sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. No, agreed. Um, but it is something to, to bring up definitely because it was so much a part of her roles as well. Um, there's this, this film called, I don't know if you've seen it, I saw it a number of years ago called um, Not as a Stranger. The, by Stanley Kramer. No, not yet. Um, yeah. uh, it's got Robert Mitchum, yes. which is why Joe's uh, <laughs> looking very jealous of me right now. <laughs> um, but she plays um, this kind of bored, uh, rich housewife at home. And there's this excellent line where she has a friend played by, oh, I can't remember who he's played by, but he comes around all the time and they get drunk. And then um, Robert Mitchum comes around and she says to her friend, she says, of Robert Mitchum, she says, Dr. Marsh is like a babysitter, but for adults. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'll take just, that. Yeah, it's yeah. just brilliant. And yeah. of course they have this torrid affair later on and it's it's really, really excellent and, and engaging and wonderful. But you can just see the way that she is aware of what her position is in Hollywood, in the system, and she she... She's not ashamed of it. She revels in it, I think. Mm. Uh, yeah, on that point, I mean, I think even before the years where her career, you know, effectively went off the rails, I'm interested in what you guys think about um, the fact that she was always more of a supporting player rather than mm. ever a lead. Because, you know, she was originally contracted to MGM and apparently they didn't know what to do with her there, so they sold her contract to RKO. Um, and I read an interesting piece um, in preparation for this that talked about her always sort of being on the... that there was something about her that needed to be contained. So she was always kept kind of on the margins mm. and on the sidelines. Yeah, because I don't think that she ever fit easily into a box. No. I mean, she was beautiful, but not kind of 
necessarily kind of sex bomb beautiful. So she doesn't quite fit your Munro version of, of the kind of the beautiful fifties blonde. Um, and she, she did, she does exude this, as we've said, this intelligence. And I wonder whether that's why maybe she doesn't quite, as you say, get continual sort of leading roles because she played better as the mm. smart friend or the smart person at the side rather than the person who's you know, the central figure, the, the desirable figure. I mean, you know, having just had a conversation about the position of women in Hollywood, I wonder whether whether that was the problem with her, that she she wasn't easily reducible because she was more complex and more intelligent, more self-aware mm. than that. Yeah, it's a really, really interesting question. And if we talk about Marilyn Monroe, I mean, I'm a firm believer that Marilyn Monroe was was very intelligent yes. and played, yeah, played her it. part yes. very yeah. well. And perhaps Gloria Graham just didn't engage in that in that portrayal of like the the um, airhead sex bomb type yeah. of thing, um, which was what was demanded of quite a few women in in lead yeah. roles at that time. Mm. And so, if she didn't play into that, then she was was always in these supporting roles, but still uh, has this magnificent presence. I mean, I was what I watched quite a few of her films where she is only sort of on the sidelines. Something like um, Odds Against Tomorrow, she's only got two scenes. I think. Yeah, right. I think brilliant. she she's one of those actresses that, for me, whatever she's in, she effectively steals the show. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's this great um, line. Sorry, I just want to bring up Roughshod, which Mark oh, and yes. I watched. Which I um, loved. This kind of noir western cool. from the uh, 50s, yeah. I think, or early, yeah. late 40s, perhaps. Yep. Um, and she's great. She says this line, which kind of is, is on, you know, on theme with what we're talking about. She's like kind of teaches this 12-year-old boy to, to read because he doesn't know how to read. And he says something... Like, um, I don't like books anymore. Like, I can't, I can't survive with books. I would rather just ride horses. And she says, um, she says this line, learning poem, learning poetry, sorry, won't fill you up at all like a bowl of oatmeal would, but they make you feel good inside. Yeah. And I love that. I mean, yeah. I think it's just really beautiful if we're considering what her role was. Yeah. And, and again, that film, you know, which I watched for the first time just recently as well, you know, she's essentially, you know, the, the kind of prostitute sort of you know, dance hall girl. Um, and yet she doesn't really necessarily fulfill the expectations of what that role would mean. She becomes the teacher. Mm. You know, she becomes this kind of incredible conduit for this young boy to actually engage with the world in a much more effective way. And so it's it's not just, you know, I danced for money um, <laughs> for men. It's you know, about her fully contributing to society and, in fact, leading a whole range of other women um, to a kind of potentially a more lucrative you know, position, I suppose, uh, in a new town. So she's always got this, even though she's plays in some ways standard roles for 50s women, she finds a way to turn them into something that isn't typical. Mm. Um, we do need to address quickly... Um, <laughs> Her, her later career, which I am a little bit besotted with mm-hmm. because, good Lord, <laughs> what was that woman doing? She did a whole string of some of the worst films I've ever seen. 
And I sort of started to love her even more because she was just choosing any, any anything that came along. Literally working with people who never made another film. Yeah, totally. Acting with people who never acted again. She was like Oscar winner Gloria Graham and a whole bunch of amateurs. <laughs> I mean, I think she, you know... Obviously, that's great, but she had to. I mean, this yes. is the narrative of women in Hollywood is that they get thrown out, they get rejected yep. um, because of their looks, because there aren't, you know, because, you know, allegedly men think no one wants to see, um, you know, old women on screen. No one wants to know that old women are sexual and still have, you know, desires. Yeah. And uh, Annette Benning in the news this morning, I just read, had was commenting on her role in the, in the film uh, starring as Gloria Graham and said, you know, there need to be more films about older women who are sexual. And she just, you know, she, uh, Annette Benning has also been in um, 20th Century Women this year, which is wonderful, where she sort of plays this um, very um, aware and uh, open older woman as well. So hopefully there's, there's going to be more coming out from that. But, you, you know, Gloria Graham had to do these things. Yes. Yeah. I mean, even down to the incredible Mama's Dirty Girls. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> Which is really appalling and sort of fascinating. It's so bad. It it doesn't even do what the plot description says it does. Really. Well, she's a mama. Yeah, she is a mama, and she has some dirty girls. <laughs> yes, yeah, she she does. So you know, it does what it says on the tin. Um, <laughs> That's true. It reminded me kind of of. I mean, it's a seventies exploitation film. It just yeah. reminded me so much of that house that they live in to begin with. Looks like the Brady Bunch house. Yes, it does. It's so it wonderful. really does. And if um, only Carol Brady had been as awesome as Gloria Graham is know, in Mama's Dirty Girls. I know. She says this line, because the, the premise is that she um, she uh, has been abused by men and so her husband was, her ex-husband was an asshole, um, or her husband was an asshole, so she kills him. Um, and then goes ahead and like every man who threatens their lives, she just teaches her daughters to kill them. Yeah. And that's sort of what happens. It's not, there's not as many murders as I would have liked. No, more death. More death. Yeah, yeah, yeah. needed more death. But she says this line, she's kind of coaching her girls and she says, it's a hard world and sometimes we got to play dirty because sure as hell, men will play dirty with us. Yeah. And I just thought that's such a wonderful line, particularly given what we've talked about in yeah, Hollywood today. Absolutely. Hers is certainly a career where the, the bleeding in of screen and star persona is yeah. constant. Yeah. She's such a fascinating lady. So we'll have to wrap that one up there. Uh, film stars uh, Don't Die in Liverpool is uh, out in London at the moment, other nations to follow. So if you want to talk to us about maybe your favourite Gloria Graham film, or indeed, if you've got to Mama's Dirty Girls <laughs> and you want to have a chat with us about it, head to our Facebook page uh, and uh, leave a comment there on our episode thread. Each month, Mark and I and our third chair will share with you a highlight from the current month, something be it of film, television or otherwise screen-related material that resonated powerfully with us and we hope you might find meaningful. Now it's time for something that lit up our screen worlds this November. Mark? All right. Well, Joe's already kind of slightly alluded to this, but my favourite thing this month was watching Anya Sparta get her honorary Oscar. Um, there is a, a beautiful sequence where she dances with Angelina Jolie up at the podium, which is just the thing that completely brings me joy. Mm. Um, but more than anything, uh, I really, really loved... Uh, a photo that I, I saw was circulating around Twitter where she had taken a photo of Jacques Demy, her, 
her husband, her dead husband, uh, to the ceremony, had the photo of her husband sitting on her table uh, and then sort of used her, her napkin to kind of put him to bed um, at the, you know, once she had received her Oscar. Uh, so, I mean, she is one of my favourite filmmakers. She's incredible. I can't believe that it's taken this long to get at least you know, recognition from, from at least the American film industry for how incredible she has been throughout her entire career. Um, and I just, uh, that recognition and the way that she handled that entire ceremony was just one of the most beautiful things ever. And I'm very, very pleased that she's got that recognition and that she took uh, Demi along with her. Great. Joe. Uh, my highlight this month uh, was definitely something I have been waiting for a long time. I've been waiting all year for some cinema somewhere in walking distance to screen the uh, 30th anniversary 4K restoration of Merchant Ivory's Morris. And knowing that that was not going to happen, I decided to buy the DVD and watch it (laughs) in the privacy of my own home. Um, I hadn't seen the film for like nearly 20 years and um, had actually just forgotten how incredibly beautiful and intoxicating an experience it was. Like most of Merchant Ivory's films, it's a flawless adaptation. It's full of intimate emotional moments and subtle, quiet gestures. And I think now's a really good time for people to rediscover it um, with uh, Call Me By Your Name opening in December, which is scripted by James Ivory, who co-scripted and directed Morris. Um, uh, Call Me By Your Name features a scene that I think is very uh, close to a scene in Morris. um, And... You know, it's an example of an earlier queer romance that does things uh, a bit differently, which the film apparently was not a success when it came out. Um, Critics kind of ignored it, despite the fact that it won awards at Venice and didn't make a lot of money, um, probably because it was deemed to be too gay, though whatever that means, I don't know. Um, And it's just a beautiful film and it's one of those rare movies that has a happy ending. Lovely. What was yours, Eloise? What made you over the moon about the worlds of screens in November? Goodness. Well, I don't think being over the moon about the world of screens is actually a way to describe this um, (laughs) highlight, unfortunately. Although I do think it's very important. So my have you uh, brought something really miserable for us? Have you a little bit? My highlight is a a book, uh, a PDF book that you can buy online. published by, written and published by writer and activist Sophie Meyer in the UK. Uh, it's called From Rape to Resistance. Oh, wow. Um, so when this, uh, the Weinstein thing first hit uh, the New York Times uh, several weeks ago um, and people were living out their pain and the history of their pain sort of in front of us, Sophie Meyer announced this book, um, a series of occasional essays headed by the introduction, Cinema is a Rape Machine. Wow. Um, anyway, so she explores a number of films, and some of these essays are short, some of them are longer, and she just kind of analyzes um, how the cinema has been built, sort of as this tool um, of to kind of exploit women and exploit bodies. Wow. Um, and it's really, really interesting. And it's, it's, I suppose you could say it's damning of to cinema, but also yep. it's it appreciates what it can do, and it appreciates the work of women on screen. She's got this brilliant essay on Agnes Varda's Cleo from Five to Seven, a really wonderful essay on um, Jane Campion's In the Cut, 
um, that how she's kind of um, unapologetic about the ongoing violence that cinema subjects women to. We can see these threads throughout like certain films. Anyway, it's a really, really interesting book. I haven't read all of it. I've only read the essays on films that I've seen, but um, that's my recommendation. Mm. Um, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, all right. That's, that's us for episode two. Um, thanks for joining us. Um, again, so appreciate the, the response that we got for our first episode uh, and really appreciate all of those who signed on to become patrons for Senses of Cinema. Um, a quick shout-out for the fact that uh, the Senses of Cinema World Poll is now open. And so if you wish to contribute, you can go to our website or our Facebook or our Twitter accounts where the call for contributions will be up there so that you can read the rules and see how to go about submitting a world poll. And remember that because now we've got the uh, podcast up and running, as well as submitting a written poll, you might want to also record a little something uh, to coincide with our world poll podcast that will take place in January after the publication of the poll. So this is your chance to be on the podcast with us. Um, so you might want to, as well as submitting your, your written poll for 2017, you could also, if you wish, contribute a 30-second audio file in which you state your name, your location, and your best film experience for 2017 and why. You can just record it on your phone uh, and our astonishing technical producer, mm-hmm. Troy Mori, will do something amazing with it so it'll sound incredible. And uh, we will choose a few to actually cut into the podcast uh, for our January edition. So as well as contributing a written poll to Senses of Cinema, the journal, you might also want to contribute a short audio file for Senses of Cinema, the podcast. Thanks to Eloise Ross and to our fantastic third chair this month, Joe DiMattia. Thanks so much. My well, pleasure. Um, thanks, Joe. <laughs> thanks to our technical producer, the aforementioned brilliant Troy Mori, and to Swinburne University for the use of their incredible facilities and their recording studio. I'm Mark Freeman, and thanks for listening to the Senses of Cinema podcast, and we'll speak with you again in December. Mm-hmm.